That hymn that we just sang is indeed a prayer, but let's echo those thoughts in our hearts as we pray for God to help us. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you. We are hungry for the food of your word. We pray that you would take your truth and plant it deep in us. Father, we confess that we are coming to a topic that is not comfortable for us as we think about suffering. And, and we, God, are, are oftentimes so wired to avoid suffering at all costs. And yet, Lord, we see that in this passage that suffering is part of your economy. But when we suffer, we do not suffer alone. When we suffer, we suffer in the footsteps of the one who suffered for us, the one who bore our sins and his body on the tree. And so we pray that now and always you would lift our eyes to Jesus and fix them there, that we would be glued to him in his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take out your copy of God's word, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. It's on page 1001 if you're using the Bible in your row. This book, my, my thought, my assumption is it's written by a pastor to his beloved congregation. And it uh, probably was actually a series of sermons uh, written to them. And they, it's to a very specific life situation. It's to a people who are in danger of drifting away from Christ. We saw that last week, that that so many of them had given up a lot to follow Christ, and now they're in danger of drifting back. You know, you, you think of a lot of drifters in Scripture. I think of a man like Demas. The Apostle Paul speaks of Demas. Demas had been a traveling companion of Paul's. And Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That's what drifting looks like if we are not anchored to Christ, that we fall in love with this world such that we drift away, that we turn away from Christ. And these Hebrew believers are at great risk because they have given up a lot to follow the Lord Jesus. Of course, they gave up the temple, the great uh, temple in Jerusalem, not only with its beautiful architecture, but with its festivals and with its rituals and the priesthood. And now they, they don't have any of that. And they're meeting in these upper rooms and they're meeting in, in graveyards. And they don't have this, the, the high priestly system. They have an invisible high priest. They don't have the sacrifices. They have the Lord Jesus who was sacrificed once for all. They don't have the social aspects of what Judaism provided. And some of them are, are thinking about all that they gave up. One thing that we haven't talked about is other stuff that they gave up. They actually lost more than just that for following Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 34 says that some of them lost all their property because of following Christ. Hebrews 13 references some of them who have gone to jail, to prison for following Christ. And they're starting to ask this question. They've lost their social group. They've lost their their financial status. Some of them have lost their freedom, and they're starting to ask the question, what are we going to do about this suffering that we're starting to experience? You know, we didn't didn't realize this was part of the equation. Now, of course, they did. They knew that Jesus had called them to suffer. But in the Jewish mind, suffering was thought to be a sign of God's displeasure. So if we're suffering, have we, have we done something wrong? Have we, should we not have, have left Judaism to follow Christ? 
They knew that suffering was not going to get any easier. The persecution is starting to increase there on the church. They knew that like their forefathers six centuries ago, they are standing at the edge of Babylon and are going to be driven into exile soon. And they're wondering, is following Christ worth all this suffering? Have you ever asked that question? What the pastor, this author, is going to do in verses 5 through 10 is give them some perspective on suffering, namely by drawing their attention to the sufferings of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What's the book of Hebrews about? Those of you that have been here for the last few sermons, you you probably have two answers. Some of you would say it's all about the superiority and the excellency of Christ. And some of you would say it's about living the Christian life, and that's why we have these warnings not to drift away, and so on. Well, which is it? Is it theology, or is it Christian living? Well, the answer is it's both, because theology is intensely practical. Theology is the guide for how we navigate life in this world, life in God's world. And so if you've ever been in a Christian bookstore and you see one section that's labeled theology and one section that's labeled Christian living, you need to go to the owner of that bookstore and say, no, 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 that's the same thing. Because theology is Christian living. And Christian living is us acting out our theology. To put it another way, A.W. Tozer, some of you know that name, famous 20th century author. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you is your theology. You may not realize it. You may even say, I don't like theology. Just give me Jesus. That's a deeply theological statement because you're a theological being. You are created in the image of the God who is theology. Nowhere is our theology-centeredness more visible than when we suffer. Our theology comes to the surface when we suffer. In suffering, we often ask the question, 
is there any point to this? Or, or is suffering meaningless? That's a deeply theological question. Let me contrast what Hebrews is going to tell us about suffering by telling you a, a, giving you a quote from Stephen Hawking that I think informs much of the world around us how they view the meaning of this world and particularly suffering. Stephen Hawking, the renowned theoretical physicist, ridiculed the idea of a creator God. Here's what he said. The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a hundred billion galaxies. We are so insignificant that I cannot believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. That would be like saying, Hawking says, that you would disappear if I close my eyes. What's Hawking saying there? If he's right, that none of this matters, and we are just a series of coincidences, then nothing in life matters and suffering is meaningless. That is a pervasive worldview in those in our world today. What if Hebrews is right, though? See, Hebrews is going to teach us perspective about our lives and about suffering. This passage teaches us that far from our lives and our suffering being meaningless and insignificant, there is a God who is mindful of even the most minute aspects of our life. And despite our sin, which we'll get to, he has a plan that he is carrying out, and that plan includes suffering, and that plan includes difficulty, and that plan is good. And if I ever wonder if that plan is good, then I need to look to the cross because he evidenced the goodness of his plan in that he sent his own son to die for us. As Christians, we live in a tension. If you're a Christian, you live in this tension, knowing on the one hand, God is good, and on the other hand, life is hard, and we suffer. And the author of this book is saying, my dear flock, here's what I want you to do in the midst of your suffering and in the midst of your wondering if it's worth it, look to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I want you to look at his experience and I want you to see this. I want you to see the way that God bestowed glory upon him and honor upon him because of his suffering and death. And I want you to bring that truth to bear in your own life. And that's what we're going to aim to do this morning is, is connect the realities of life in a difficult, hard world with what Jesus has done and the sufferings of Christ for our sake upon the cross. Now, admittedly, this can be a difficult passage because there's times, I think, where it's talking about man, us, 
and there's times it's talking about Jesus, and no two commentaries really seem to agree on which times it's talking about us and which times it's talking about Jesus. So right off the bat, I want to say not everybody's going to agree on exactly who's in view with each of these statements. So what we're going to do today is take about a 5,000-foot view at this passage to get the big picture, and I want you to see four things. First, in verses 5 to 7, we're just going to see that God made man. Second, in verse 8, particularly the latter part of verse 8, we're going to see that man has sought to make himself God. Third, in verse 9, we're going to see that the Son of God became man. And fourth, we're going to see that men may become sons of God. So track with me. All those are written in your bulletin. You've got an outline there. First, in verses 5 to 7, we see God made man. It's funny language when it says in verse 5, it's written somewhere. Now, it's, it's funny language. He's not saying, I don't know where it's written. It, that passage was so common from Psalm 8 that everybody reading would have known exactly where it was from. And he references David's words in Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? the son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower, uh, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Now, two verses in, we've already blown Hawking's idea right out of the water, right? Yes, this world is grand, but man is not meaningless. And the reason man is not meaningless is because we are specially created beings knitted together by the God of the universe. You know, this hits on on an area of, of cultural schizophrenia today in our world. See, our world on the one hand says, there's no God, we're here by chance, and you are no more important than an earthworm. You're no more important than a baby monkey. You're, you're no more important than a baby whale. And on the other hand, we are training our children relentlessly to have high self-esteem. Do you see the schizophrenia of that? Do you see how little sense that makes? You're just here by coincidence, but you need to be, realize how important you are. It's impossible. It's confusing. It's part of the reason that children today are are experiencing tremendous confusion, tremendous depression. Counselors, I learned this recently, since the pandemic started, you can barely get a child in to see a counselor because they are so backed up right now. Why? Because we're telling, telling children, you're really important, but also you're a product of about a billion coincidences and you could just as easily not be here. Think about how the psalmist answers this. You know, in our context, there are 7 billion people on the face of the earth. And even though you're one dot among 7 billion other dots, God deeply cares about your life. God knows the number of hairs upon your head. And that's not to build up your self-esteem. You know, you shouldn't walk out of here going, boy, I'm really important. You should say, what a God. What a God that he could have everything on earth to uphold and sustain, and yet he cares deeply about me. That is truly astounding. You know, this pastor saying, can't you see the infinite glory of God that he cares about you individually? He knows your name and the number of hairs upon your head. In fact, that word mindful, it doesn't just mean he knows who you are. He's seen your name on a list somewhere. It means he has a deep love for you. 
This is speaking of God's people. This is those who are trusting in Christ, and we'll come back to that. But there's no other part of creation that God is mindful of in this way. He is not mindful of the sea turtles the way he is mindful of his people. He hasn't set his love firmly upon the baby whales, but he, has set his, he hasn't even set his love upon the angels the way he has set his love upon his church. And we're told God has crowned him with glory and honor. The image here is that after the creation, on the sixth day of creation, after everything else was in place, God put the crown on the creation. What is the crown? The crown is mankind. Mankind is the crown jewel. And then it says God put everything in subjection under his feet. This is a reminder of God saying to Adam that Adam's to have dominion over all things. Over all this created order, Adam is king. And he's to have dominion. How would Adam know how to have dominion? By watching God. God had carefully and lovingly cultivated him from the dirt. And so Adam was to carefully and lovingly cultivate the earth. Adam was over all things except God. And Adam trusted God at every turn, knowing that all things were ultimately under his control. And it was paradise at first. But in the providence of God, it was a paradise from which man had the freedom to fall. This brings us to the second thing. Man used that freedom to sin against God, and in so doing, man sought to make himself God. So God made man second. Man sought to make himself God. Look at verse 8, the end of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What is that talking about? You know, it's not talking about nature. The beasts of the field, the sun, moon, and the stars, they all do exactly what God commands of them. They are obedient uh, to his wishes. Of all creation, the only part that refuses to do the will of God is man. This is talking about, when it says here, we don't see all things in subjection to him. That's talking about sin entering into the world. Do you realize that? Sin is, at its core, man attempting to be God. So when the scriptures say, you shall not, whatever it is, and you do it anyways, you're saying, you know what, I'm a better God of my life than you are. I'll play God today. I will not be tamed by your rules, God. So rather, here's what's happened. Rather than man saying, what is God that you are, what is man that you are mindful of him? Rather than man saying that, man today walks about going, what is God that I should be mindful of him? Who's this God and why should I pay attention to him? Maybe if he serves my ends, then, then I'll follow him. Here's what we need to understand. Why is there suffering in the world? It's because of sin. Now, it, not all suffering can be traced back to a root sin, In other words, a a cancer diagnosis, you can't look at that and go, well, it's because I rolled my eyes at my mom when I was seven years old. You can't trace it back to one particular instance in most cases. But suffering is because of sin. It's evidence that the created order has been upset because the crown jewel of creation has functioned out of order. 
in human rebellion. It's, it's interesting, in, in light of recent events, gun control debates have heated up once again. Now, like everybody else in America, I have strong opinions on this. But one of the things that I notice is that the assumption and the solution for gun control problems, for example, and mass murder and so on, is that the problem's out there. And if we can just legislate it, educate it, or regulate it, we will fix this problem. But we won't. Because the problem is not the guns. It's not the legislation. The problem is the human heart. So we can legislate all day long, and if we take away guns, we'll just find other things to kill people with. The problem is not out there. The problem is here. It's a heart issue. We can't fix the problem because we are the problem. We can't fix the problem because we are the problem. And so these things that we're seeing in our world today, if, if our thought process is we just need better schools and better laws, this world will be happy. It'll be a little heaven on earth. That's not true because you and I will still be here and we'd ruin whatever piece of heaven on earth we think we've created. It's not because of out there. It's because of what's in here. It's because of what we've done as a culture where we've taught an entire culture to marginalize God, to destroy the family, and to do whatever your heart, makes, uh, whatever your heart says will make you happy. That's what we've done. That's why we are where we are. So what do we do? What do we do in the midst of a broken, suffering world? We can blame others. It's fun to blame others, isn't it? We can blame the Democrats, or we can blame the Republicans, or we can blame Dr. Fauci. That's fun. But the problem is a heart issue, and the solution is the gospel. The ultimate solution and the only solution is the gospel. You know, that's the reason people are so cynical today. I mean, we live in an incredibly cynical world. And it's because on the one hand, the world has improved technologically, it's improved educationally, it's improved me uh, medically, but there's still suffering. We haven't wiped out suffering yet. We can't figure out how to fix it. Maybe there's even more suffering or maybe we're just more aware of it than we were 50 years ago. We keep hoping things will get better and they don't. Just think about 100 years ago, our country fighting the war to end all wars. That name was not long-lived. It got a new name. What was it changed to? World War I. We had to call it World War I so that we didn't confuse it with World War II. The war to end all wars did not end war, did it? It's led to an incredibly cynical and hopeless culture. Because we see suffering as a pointless reality with no end in sight. You know, if, if there were atheist churches out there, here's what their, their motto would be. Come suffer with us. It's all meaningful and there's no end in sight. That's why our world is so cynical. And look what this pastor does here. He says, you're right. There is no end in your sight. So here's what you need to do. Turn your eyes on Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
This is the same Jesus who we saw as the glorious Son of God in chapter 1. And now we see him that he has taken on flesh and he's even tasted death. So this is our third point. The Son of God became man. This author is doing something really fascinating in verses 6 through 7. He's quoting Psalm 8, but it's against the backdrop of Genesis chapter 1. It's against the backdrop of the creation. And so in Genesis 1, you see Adam as the prototype. You see Adam as the first human. But what did Adam do? He fell into sin. And with him, all of human existence plunged downward. Job, Job 5, 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. So he's said that here. He's talked about the prototypical man, the first Adam. And then he repeats himself in verse 9. Another who for a little while was made lower than the heavens. Another crowned with glory and honor. What we're seeing here is there's a second Adam. There's a new creation here that's in view. And who is it? Namely Jesus, it says. Namely Jesus. This is the Jesus whose divinity we saw in chapter 1. Now we see his humanity in chapter 2. This same glorious Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh as the second Adam. And as the second Adam, he came to take back, to undo all that the first Adam lost in sin. He came to put the world back in order. And one day, as Tolkien said, everything sad will come untrue. Everything sad will be undone. What's amazing, when our world suffers and it blames God for suffering, Ultimately, what they're doing is turning their weapons upon the only one who can actually make sense of suffering, who can make sense of death and hardship. Instead, they should look forward to the one who is restoring all things. Look with me at Hebrews 10. I referenced this a couple minutes ago. Hebrews 10, uh, verse 34 This is talking about how many of these believers lost their property. They lost their wealth because of Christ. Verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. How did they endure the loss of all things in this world? Because they looked forward to a better world to come. This world that Jesus came to recreate. And it's not just a future element. Sometimes we talk about, is the kingdom of God future or is it present? And the answer is yes. It's already and it's not yet. He hasn't yet fully recreated the world, but he is recreating parts of it, namely us, believers. He's recreating us. He became slightly lower than the angels. In other words, he became one of us. God became man. He didn't do that for the angels when they sinned, but when man sinned, he for a time became lower than the angels. And what did God do in the person of Jesus Christ? He suffered. God suffered. You know, uh, sometimes if you ask me, how are you doing? My answer is always going to be better than I deserve. 
It's true, and I think it's a great way to talk about the gospel with people because unbelievers will go, no, surely you deserve a good life. And honestly, do you really want to know what I deserve? I deserve hell and punishment. I deserve what Jesus got. No matter how bad my life gets this side of eternity, I can always say it's better than I deserve. But you cannot say that about Christ. Christ did not get better than he deserved. He got what I deserve in this life. He suffered even to the point of death, or as verse 9 says, he tasted death. Now, don't think in terms of nibbling on it. Think of, uh, of t- eating it whole. He tasted death with all its bitterness, all, all its disgusting nature, the flavor that was so noxious to him. He bit into it, and he ate it, or, or he drank it to the dregs, we could say. But he wasn't detained by it. Death couldn't hold Jesus. Instead, he tasted death for everyone, we're told. In that that little phrase, he tasted death for everyone, it's a a picture of the gospel in a nutshell. Now, everyone doesn't mean every single person on the face of the earth. That's a doctrine called universalism. When I was at a liberal undergrad school, that's what we were taught, that because of Jesus' death, every single person was redeemed. That's not what this means. It's talking about the church. We'll see that in a few minutes as it begins to talk about sons and it talks about offspring. This is talking about the people of God who were redeemed through the death of Christ. He tasted death for everyone, elect from every nation. And what he's doing right now is he is building his church. He is building the new creation as he's renewing us making us new creations on earth. And he's giving us, instead of a taste of death, he's giving us a taste of the new heavens. He, he gives us in the Lord's Supper a taste of the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And this pastor's telling its flock, you know, it's possible in this life, suffering may not let up. But if you turn your back on Jesus, you're gonna miss the point of it all. Look to Jesus, this one who, though he is excellent, though he is superior to even the angels, he became lower than the angels, and he took on human flesh, and he suffered, and he died, and fix your eyes upon him. Look at verse 9. Why did he do it all? By the grace of God, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What does grace mean? Grace is shorthand for the incredible love and kindness of God in not treating us as our sins deserve and instead giving us all that Christ deserved because Christ took all that we deserve. Grace is transformative. If we desire joy, no matter our circumstances, we need to understand grace. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the secret of a happy Christian life is to realize that it is all of grace and to rejoice in the fact that it is all of grace. Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you cannot escape the mercy and goodness of God. How do we know that? Because his son pursued us by becoming man and even suffering for us. 
Well, that leads us to a fourth thing here. We see it in verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This pastor is telling us here that through the suffering and death of the Son of God, for man, now men may become sons of God. I don't know if you realize this, but Jewish folks, until about a thousand years ago, Jewish folks did not refer to God as Father. There is not one written piece of Jewish literature referring to God as Father in the familial sense. And they didn't view themselves as sons and daughters in the familial sense. They viewed themselves that way in the created sense, but not in the familial sense. In fact, that's part of what got Jesus in trouble. That's part of what started some of his controversies was that he referred to himself as Son, as a Son of God. Now, these Jewish converts that have heard the gospel, have seen the wonder of the gospel, they're hearing these words, you are sons and daughters of God. It's interesting language here. It says that Christ would be made perfect through suffering. That word made perfect, it doesn't mean he was not perfect. He wasn't sinless. He wasn't righteous. It doesn't mean that. Perfect means complete or mature or able to accomplish an end goal. And here's how we need to understand it. We suffer because we have chosen sin. It's what we do. Christ did not sin but chose to suffer for our sins. So he took on flesh And then upon the cross, the weight of our sin was poured out upon him. He who knew no sin became sin. When it talks about him being made perfect, it's talking about our sins being poured out upon Christ on the cross. It's him fulfilling his earthly mission. It's in him suffering the full punishment that our sins deserve. And because he tasted death for us, we now get to enjoy life with him and in him. Now, for the rest of the chapter, the pastor is going to boast in that language of sons, of offspring. Look look at, at verse 10, many sons. Verse 11, he calls them brothers. Verse 13, he calls them children. Do you know that if you are in Christ, that is who you are? We are quick to allow suffering to define us. I'm the sufferer. I'm the one who's the victim. I went through this. I went through that. And it begins to define us. We see ourselves through that lens. If you are trusting in Christ, the truest thing about you, the truest statement about you is not your suffering. It is that you are sons and daughters of God. Once we get that, we can begin to see that the events of our life, even the sufferings of our life, are not happenstance. They're not random, meaningless events. They are custom-fitted trials given to us from the hand of our loving Heavenly Father. Whatever your affliction is, and you probably have one today, if you're in Christ, then you can be absolutely confident that is a custom-fitted trial And God is going to use it in your life for good. Turn over to Hebrews 12. 
This shows us that our suffering is God's way of fitting us for glory. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Suffering's not meaningless. The difficulties of life are not meaningless. They don't define you. Here's what they are. They are the loving hand of your heavenly Father who is transforming you from dust into glory. This is so good uh, that when we are in the midst of trials and the midst of suffering and affliction and we can't make any sense of it and we feel like it's hopeless and we want to say to God, why? God says, look at my son on whom I bestowed honor and glory. And I want you to trust that just as his suffering served my purpose for the good of my people, for my family, so too will yours. Because through your suffering, I am preparing you for glory. That may be all the answer we ever get this side of of heaven about why we suffer. It's more than Job got. But in your suffering, remember this. Our Heavenly Father says, remember Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And then remember that you can trust me even when you don't know why. I gave my only begotten Son for you, my child. So look to your elder brother, Jesus. Look at my firstborn Son. If we will do that, if our suffering can drive our eyes upward to Jesus as it is designed to do, then suffering is actually a great blessing and it can bring us great joy. So let me ask you first, Scots, which story of suffering do you want? Do you want the Stephen Hawking suffering that it's all meaningless? That there is nothing of any importance in your suffering? One day you'll be gone and forgotten? Or... Is it the story of Hebrews? Is it the story of Jesus Christ? That you may not understand the meaning behind your suffering, but when you suffer, when you suffer, every bit of it, every ounce of it comes from a loving Heavenly Father who has proven His love for His children because He sent His Son to die for you. You may not see the answer in this life, but one day you will if you're in Christ and you will say to God, well done, God. Thank you for what I went through because it made me love and treasure Christ more. One point of application. We must be willing to suffer for Christ if he calls us to give up ease and comfort in order to follow him. Jesus told us to take up our cross and follow him. And and for most of us, that's not been our life experience. I suppose that most of us have suffered very, very little. At least in comparison to these Hebrew believers, they, they had lost so much. 
their wealth, some of them their freedom. And the thought in their minds was, you know, if I just deny Christ, if I just turn my back on Jesus, then I can live the good life again. Just let go of Jesus. Or maybe I can find some hybrid between following Christ and still having this world. That's what our world has done. They've come up with a counterfeit Christianity to try to call themselves Christians but not have to give up anything. Friends, look into the world because guess what's coming our way? You and I, our toes with every passing day are getting one step closer to Babylon. You are going to be in a position, if you are not already there, you will be in a position of losing friends and family and losing jobs and perhaps even losing freedom for the sake of the gospel. It's shocking to say this, but if you keep holding on to the position that I think most people in this room hold, traditional Christian views like two genders, that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, that only a woman can have a baby, and that the world is lying to us when they tell us anything to the contrary, if you hold to that position, you are going to be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. What's happening today is the church in America is jettisoning, jettisoning the Christian faith or trying to soften its edges in hopes of avoiding suffering. This passage teaches us that that's not an option. And we don't need to avoid suffering at all costs because if we are following Christ, it's when we suffer that we are the most like him and that we can best follow him. As we're able to say, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Beloved, we have got to loosen our grip on the comforts and ease of this world and cling to Jesus because one day you are probably going to be called to choose between them. May we be found faithful. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we would love to think of a world of ease. We would love to think of a world where everyone gets along and we can um, profess the name of Christ and be adored within the world, but we know that is not reality. And we know that <clears throat> the storm is probably coming. We know people who have lost jobs. We know people who have become social outcasts because they hold to the same things that the church has believed for 2,000 years, and they hold to the same things that, frankly, Americans believed a decade ago. Father, help us to cling to Jesus, to find that Jesus really is sufficient, that even if this whole world is going to be stripped away from us, if we have Jesus, we have enough. Father, help us to so adore him and enjoy him that we truly can